Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. The first sorrowful mystery describes the agony of our Lord in the garden. And it's interesting that three of the um, evangelists speak about the agony of our Lord. First of all, he takes a journey down to the garden, which St. John describes, and arriving in the, in the garden, he leaves eight of the apostles at the entrance to the garden. He takes the other three with him into the innermost part of the garden. The three that he took were privy to several of his miracles, in particular the resurrection of a little girl from, from the dead. Secondly, they were privy to the transfiguration, which was to strengthen them for the scandal of the cross. The other eight were not privy to these two uh, miracles. And so to offset the, the scandal that they would experience, in fact, they would all run away, to offset that, he left them at the entrance. And then he asked them, all 11, to pray. In particular, to pray that they did not be put to the test. They do not enter into temptation. And then he permitted himself to feel the full burden of suffering, which consisted essentially in the sense of the abandonment by God. Secondly, that he wanted human consolation since there wasn't the divine consolation. And even that was lacking. Thirdly, he saw the suffering that he would go through, for he had all of this foreknowledge. He would see the insults that he would have to endure. He would foresee the abuse that he would have to suffer, the scourging, the crowning, the spittle, the rejection, the crowds who before had said Hosanna to the son of David would now be shouting crucify him. He would know the anguish of being rejected by his own people, the, the chief priests, and being ridiculed by the Gentiles. And all of this, and above all of this, and crowned in all of this, would be the sins from Adam right through to the very last human being, for which he had to make reparation, as we heard in the letter uh, in the prophet Isaiah. He would have to carry the full burden of mankind's sin and sins. 
he would see them in the minute, in the, in the details. He would see the various kinds of sins. And he saw them as if he himself had committed them. But in all of this, what would he be doing? Well, two things. He would, and this comes from his prayer, he would be trying to satisfy the divine justice. That was primary. But even one drop of his blood would have been sufficient to, to, to satisfy divine justice because of who he was. We need to remember that the greater the person is, the more um, significance, the more um, power their apology or their suffering is. And since we have the Son of God himself who is making satisfaction, there could be no greater means for making satisfaction. That's why St. Peter could say that we are ransomed not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. So the divine justice was the first thing that he was going to satisfy by his passion. But if one drop of his blood was sufficient to do this, why did he endure all the other suffering as well. And the answer comes again from the, the, the second characteristic of the divinity of, of God. God is just, but God is also love or merciful. So justice and mercy are going to meet in Christ. And mercy itself comes about because of love. And so, to show the extent how much God loves us, he would endure all of the atrocities, all of the, the insults, the abuse that mankind could offer. He would accept it out of his love for us. Or, better still, out of the Father's love for us. And yet, it is the same love, whether of father or of son, or indeed of the Holy Ghost. It is the same divine love. The Father loves us. And this, of this we can be certain, because he was willing to give his only son, his only begotten son. It wasn't as if he had many sons, but he had only one son, yet he was willing to give him over, hand him over for our redemption. As our Lord would say to Nicodemus, God loved the world so much in such a way that he gave his only begotten son. And so our Lord would endure all of these other things so as to make known to us the magnitude and the generosity of the divine love for us. The question naturally arises, what is there in us that God should love us 
to the extent of giving his son as a holocaust, as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. What is it that he loves in us? Do any of us love a speck of dust? We don't like a speck of dust. We blow it away. Yet, we are told by the scriptures that all of creation is but a speck of dust in the sight of God. So what is it that he loves in us? And we need to go back again to the creation where God made where God created our parents, our first parents, in his own image and likeness. And we know that God is love, meaning that God loves himself. We love ourselves. It is the nature of every creature to love itself. And it takes this quality from the creator himself, who loves himself. Our Lord would say the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And the mutual love of these two persons, who are both divine, is the third person of the Blessed Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, who is love. And so, in the divine Godhead, there are these three persons. The Father who is the begetter of all things, the Son, who is begotten, and who is the Word, or the, or, or the knowledge of the Father, and the Holy Spirit, who is love, the mutual love of Father and Son, in this great mystery. And so when the Trinity, because all three persons created, when the God created us, he created his own image and likeness in us. Every creature partakes in some way in God's image and likeness, each in varying degrees. So the immaterial universe um, copies or reflects God's existence. It is. And then we have the animals who sense, uh, who have a kind of a knowledge, and there are we who are made in the image in as much as we are destined for eternity. And so God loves his own image in all of creation. And so when our first parents sinned and deformed not only themselves as all of creation, God wished to restore this image because he loves his image. So we can sum it up by saying that what God love, actually loves in us is his own image, himself. When we, by our sins, destroy, disfigure this image, we are in fact reducing the image that God loves. And this is what, in fact... Um, causes our misery because we are less than we ought to be. And so it is with this mind that Christ entered into the garden. And what does he do? He feels the divine absence is going to intensify later on the cross, but he begins to feel the divine absence. There is no human consolation. And so he casts himself in prayer. And he prays. He prays with devotion inasmuch as he threw himself on the ground. And he turned his whole mind to the Father. He prayed with humility, inasmuch as on the ground he wept because of sin. 
because of not his sin, but the sins that he was to make reparation for. He prayed with confidence, my father, if it is possible, let this chalice pass. Yet, he prayed with submission, not my will, but yours be done. And then, in, in these ways, he shows us how we ourselves should pray. Add in the last and the most important, perhaps, namely, perseverance. He prayed with perseverance. We're told three times he went to see what the apostles were doing, or rather to wake them up. And then he went back repeating the same prayer. Father, if it is possible. And so in this way, he teaches us the essential characteristics of prayer. That we should pray with devotion. That we should pray with humility. That our prayer should be confident. That it should always be with submission to the divine will. Knowing that the divine will can only want what is best for us. And that lastly, we should persevere in prayer. In this way, we will be able to overcome our own weaknesses and failures. But too often we get tired of, of, of praying because it seems as if our prayer is not being heard. But we're told in the letter to the Hebrews, aloud and in silent tears, he prayed and his prayer was heard. His prayer wasn't that the chalice pass, as that our sins be forgiven. That prayer was heard. He felt, because in his humanity, he felt the full horror of the, his approaching death. For to all of us, death has its own terrors. But he, as, as a man, he also permitted himself to feel the horror of death, the disintegration of the body. Although he himself, of course, would not experience it, but he had certainly experienced the separation of body and soul, the two that are meant to be together. And so he shows us that undergoing death out of love of God is in fact one of the ways in which we can in fact fulfill and achieve the very purpose for which we were created. He would say in the case of Judas, the Son of Man goes his way, but alas, the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, better for him if he had not been born, indicative that Judas did not achieve the purpose for which he had been created. And when we read the history of the early church and the martyrs, and we can even look at the martyrs of our own time, we, we find so many remarkable examples of, of, of the, the saints, the martyrs, our brothers and sisters, men, women like us, who were willing to endure the most dreadful of tortures, the greatest of suffering, because Christ had given the example. Among them, the, and this is just one, um, 
the, the martyrs of Sabet, um, Sebast, there were 40 of them. They belonged to the legion, the 12th legion. They were all Christians. They were known because of their particular honesty and also for their great courage. When Lysius became the governor, um, he demanded that all the legion, all members of the legion, offer sacrifice. And these 40 did not. They came forward and said, we are Christians. We cannot offer the sacrifice to pagan gods. And knowing of their courage, knowing of the devotion with which they had served the emperor, Lysias offered them promotion, honors, glory, whatever they wanted, if only they would offer the sacrifice, and they refused. And so he had them scourged, and still they did not falter. There were 40 of them in number. Out of frustration, the Lysias had them um, to be condemned to death by freezing. This happened in Armenia, Sabas in Armenia. It was winter time. The lake had been, was frozen, so much so it is possible to walk on it. And so he condemned them to death. They would be stripped naked and they would be put on the ice. And in case any of them changed their mind, he had very close to the lake hot baths prepared so that they could, they could just move from the ice to the bath. Their prayer before they, they, as they approached the lake was, Lord God, we have served you faithfully. There are 40 of us. 40 of us go to death. Let 40 of us be crowned. And they didn't wait to be stripped, but they stripped themselves and they lay on the ice. And amidst this great suffering, because constantly they were being cajoled, and encouraged to come, and the baths, the warm water was there for them. And one of them couldn't take the, the, the pressure anymore, and he jumped up and went straight into the baths, and of course died instantly because of the shock. But the guard who had been watching, when he saw that, he himself stripped his, stripped his clothes off, and went and joined the other 39. And they, all of them were, um, died, in fact. Except for one, at least all of them died on the ice. When they, they came to take the bodies away, there was one, a young um, soldier, a young legionary, who was still alive. And his mother was there. And she, she said to him, my son, just like the Maccabees, my son, Christ has been faithful to you, remain faithful to him. And with her own hands, she took him and she dropped him on the pile of the other 39 bodies where he expired. And this is only one example. When we, we, we read you know, the lives of the saints, we find example after example after example of this. You know, um, even in our own time, we, we see the, the, the great cardinals who were imprisoned during communist times and who uh, were drugged and humiliated with, with um, fake trials, yet they remained faithful to the end. They could, none of them, no martyr could do this if it had not been for Christ 
who in fact showed us that this life is nothing compared with the blessings of the eternity to which we are called. They could not endure their sufferings if they didn't know that, there were, that these sufferings were to be crowned with a glory that cannot even be imagined. St. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. And in all of this, remember what St. Paul tells us, that we are being trained to carry the weight of eternal glory. So even as we go through this valley of tears, amidst the difficulties and temptations, struggles that it offers, let us keep our minds firmly fixed on Christ, who has gone before us. And no matter what comes our way, let us pray with him, with full confidence in God, perseveringly, with humility, with devotion, and with due submission of our minds and our wills to the Father's will, which is our salvation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Thank you.